The podcast this week is brought to you by DoorCountyTickets.com. Door County Tickets is an online ticket portal dedicated exclusively to Door County events like the Door County Beer Festival, the Peninsula Century Spring and Autumn Classics, and musical acts throughout the county. For more information, visit DoorCountyTickets.com. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse about the stories you can find in this week's issue. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined this week by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. Uh, we are back fully into winter. We had a couple days respite there for a little bit, and now it is snowing and staying. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I still can't get leaves out of my yard, and now I'm freezing. See, I actually, I had an opportunity. I, I woke up early, and I leaf blew and raked and got all the leaves out of my nice. like driveway and back porch area and stuff like that. Uh, wasn't able to get rid of the mulch or clean the gutters, but I know one big thing. Bailey's Harbor was coming through today with the leaf collector. Um, they have to go through and scrape the leaves off the, the gutters to, to try and loosen them up. And then in Sturgeon Bay, when I was at the council meeting last week, they actually said that their leaf collectors are having trouble because all the leaves that were piled up, since everything froze earlier, they were just like like piles of ice leaves all over Sturgeon Bay. But yeah, were- I noticed that too. Uh, when I was leaf blowing, uh, the top layer would fly off loose, but then the bottom layer was just like this big fabric of leaves that were all stuck together. Yeah, just a weird fall in the way everything fell down. Like I, I don't remember there ever being like this kind of funky November weather before. Well, we have three big stories to talk about this week, so why don't we jump right into it? Let's Uh, do it. First off, the hotel door developer seeks concession on retail space. So the original plan with the new 40-unit hotel in Sister Bay was to have uh, a number of retail spaces on the first level, and that's looking to change in the future, correct? Yeah, so Sister Bay zoning, um, you can build a hotel and not have retail on the first floor, but... Only if you go three stories. Their zoning does allow for a concession. If you if you want to go to four stories, you can do that, but you have to have retail on the first floor. So this this project is a four-story, 45-foot-tall hotel. Um, anybody who's paid attention knows a lot about it probably because it's been pretty controversial and it's a lot of social media play um, on both sides. But now the developer has come back and he said with construction costs rising, he wants to eliminate the retail on the first floor in to, to add more hotel rooms on that first floor to drive more revenue. So basically the way the math works out, it's much more profitable to have a hotel room than retail rental space. You just, the square, the, the prices you can get for retail just don't come close to what you can get from hotel room, even if, even at Door County seasonality. Even if you rent those hotel rooms for 90, 90 days a year, you're generating much more revenue. And then you don't have to worry about with re- retail, you know, f- finding the people to rent them. And then if they don't fill or if a business goes out of business, you, like, you might have six months, maybe a year that it just sits empty. So you don't have any revenue for those stretches. Right. So walk me through this a little bit. Give me an example of a hotel in Door County that has retail on its first floor. There aren't many, actually. Um, Stone Harbor Resort in Sturgeon Bay has restaurants and convention space on their first floor and a small retail unit in there. But it's not like a whole hotel full of retail on that first floor. As I'm running through my head, there are several other hotels that have restaurant components. In urban areas outside of Door County, like in the cities, you'll see that a lot. And even there, they have retail spaces that sit empty. Just because retail is harder to fill than ever, just because people are shopping online. Off the top of my head, I'm struggling to think of any that do. The reason towns require that, 
And the reason Sister Bay requires that is because what you don't want in a community is all residential, and then you don't create any of this foot traffic and this activity on your street scene. So you want, you want those hotels to not just be these big blocks that just kind of stop the walking traffic and create sort of a missing teeth or a dark store type of thing. So they put that in place, I know at least since 2007, when they did their community-wide kind of redevelopment plan when they bought up a lot of the waterfront. But now, with the way retail struggles in brick and mortar, it, there is a debate about whether or not that actually is still wise. But in this case, this developer is coming in, Chris Schmelz, He's asking for something special from the village, and he's already got other concessions. So it was pretty interesting to see a plan commission. I was at the plan commission meeting Tuesday where the, all the plan commission members really seem to want to help him get this hotel going. They want the project, but they have their code. And as Commissioner Nate Bell said, I personally would like to approve this, but I can't. Our code doesn't say that we can. Sure. They did come up with a workaround. And they said, we'll allow you the concession for part of it. So you could, we'll allow you to do four more hotel units on the first floor, but you still have to hold two spots for retail. Um, and that's kind of their workaround that they came up with that would still need to be approved by the village board. Who knows if they will do that? I, I was going to ask. So uh, we, originally we were looking at six retail units on the first floor. Now that's down to two. two. And, and you said the, these concession things. As I was reading through the article, it, the, a lot of the quotes from him is that, you know, it's getting too expensive and it's getting too difficult. But aren't those things that were foreseen at the beginning of this whole endeavor? Well, some of it would have been. There are Construction costs are skyrocketing right now. The tariffs that the Trump administration have put on, on both steel and Canadian lumber are having an impact, and we're feeling it in Door County. Builders are feeling that. Steel prices in some reports I've seen up 11%, lumber prices up another 5% over the last six, seven months. Um, that all starts to add up to, I think, in a single-family residential home, just that lumber increase could increase the cost of the home by about $8,000. So you take that into a larger commercial structure and you're seeing significant price increases. Some of that, those projections were out there that this was happening as soon as they started talking about the tariff. So it's not a, there is a question of like, is this developer sort of holding the village over a barrel right now by bringing this up at the last second when he's saying, well, I, I need to start breaking ground, otherwise I'm not going to be able to do this when he probably knew this a long time ago. I would be surprised if he hadn't been thinking about putting hotel units down there several months ago. Sure. And it only came to the board now, or so, to the plan commission now. So the story really is one about, is this a result of unforeseen circumstances, or is it uh, kind of more of a manipulative move? That, I mean, I, I can't say one way or the other. Right. There's, there's definitely circumstances. There are definitely price increases. That's not... Um, there's not a debate about that. Uh, and as to the motivations of the developer, I, I can't speak for that. I guess you, you just have to take him at his word and say, like, hey, I wanted to do it this way, and now I can't. Um, he also did not seem to, when he came to the meeting, um, he did not seem to be aware that this was just in the code and that you can't just switch those from hotel rooms to, or from retail to hotel. Like, that's, that's not allowed. He seemed a little surprised by that, which... Um, is a knock on him as a developer because you really should have all that researched and, and know all that before you embark on a project like this. Right. Um, and then on the other side of this, as you said, there is this desire to to help this project out because Sister Bay has the highest occupancy rates in Door County, correct? It does, So yes. uh, an, another big hotel in Sister Bay would be a good thing. Yeah, hi hypothetically. Uh, there is some question that uh, some folks have raised of late that with Airbnb eating into the market more and more, even though the occupancy go rate is going up, are more and more people staying in the, the, the private homes? 
and searching the vacation rental market versus hotels. So, and if that trend continues, will there be less demand for the hotel rooms? So would we have like a kind of a glut of hotel rooms? I don't know the, the math on that. We'll have to see when the Visitor Bureau releases their numbers at the end of this year on the types of lodging that people are staying in, uh, or not the Visitor Bureau, the room, uh, the Tourism Zone Commission. When we see the types of, of lodging that people are choosing, then you could have a, a better report on that. Right now, it's kind of a hypothetical, but you can speculate pretty easily just knowing the popularity of those types of lodging. Sure. Now, the one one caveat with this is there's still retail in the plan for that property. They, he also has, in phase two of this build-out, he's going to build, um, or at least the plan says he will build retail units along Bayshore Drive. So even if he didn't have them in the building, you'd still have retail out in front of the building. They'd just be in a separate complex. So they're it, it makes it tough for the plan commission to say like a hard no because we're still getting a lot of what we want. And like Greg Casperson, lifelong Sister Bay resident, spoke up at the meeting and he said, you know, this, I would support the village making some, working on the code here and manipulating the code a little bit because you're essentially getting what you've always wanted. Since the start of all this redevelopment planning, they've said that they wanted to use that, that property and they wanted a big hotel there and a big development there. And they wanted to eventually look into the future. They knew Casperson's wasn't going to be there forever. So they wanted to do something with that big property. Those were two cornerstone properties of the whole development plan. So he's saying, you're, you're getting close to what you wanted here. Even if you have to make a couple concessions, maybe that's the right way to go. Or maybe it is correct to rethink that whole retail on the first floor concept. But so what they did is they came up with that little compromise. That'll go to the village board next month. And we'll see what the village board says. And we'll see if that compromise is good enough for the developer too, because he wanted six, he got four. He, he wasn't clear at the meeting if, if that was enough to make it a go. So his plan was to nix retail completely on the first floor and just have it in those, those other buildings on the property? Yes. Okay, and they've, they've met in the middle and that will be, uh, that'll be voted upon as we move forward. Yeah. Okay. Uh, any other takeaways from this story? Uh, one more is that, you know, that whatever they do there is going to affect other properties in the, in the village and the Casperson property. They, there's a lot of interest in that one from other developers and the Casperson's business is going to, it's been purchased by Hewn's Funeral Home in Sturgeon Bay. Not the, not the property, but just like the, the funeral home business. So there is, you know, you can speculate of what's going to happen on that Casperson's property. That's a big lot just next to Al Johnson's. So right. more changes coming for Sister Bay. Should be a fun year ahead. Sure. Next up, Jim Lundstrom wrote an article about Death Door Spirits filing for bankruptcy. On November 21st. Yeah, the uh, kind of the original craft spirit that was never located in Door County, but very related to Door County sure. by harvesting wheat and other ingredients from Washington Island. It kind of grew out of the old Washington Island wheat beer that Capital Brewery um, started brewing 15 or so years ago. And Death Store Spirits has been a, a really popular brand. Um, when I lived in Chicago, you would see it at the best craft cocktail bars on the back bar, prominent, prominently placed. Um, on a lot of cocktail menus and got a lot of publicity. And what about five years ago, they they expanded and built the largest distiller um, facility in Wisconsin. And it seems like from if you read between the lines, it sounds like that was maybe uh, an overreach. They were early on kind of this craft spirits boom that came a little bit after like the first wave of the craft beer boom. And maybe at that time, it seemed like the, the sky was the limit for their product and to go big. And now it seems that what happened is a lot of other people came into that, that category. Even in Door County, we now have two distilleries um, with Hatch Distillery and Door Peninsula opening their Door County distillery line. So you've had a lot more influx into that market, and maybe that's just eaten at their, 
their ability to grow and become what they thought maybe would be like an international brand. Right. Um, Where are they based out of? They are in Middleton, just outside of Madison. Okay. Because um, we we just recently covered the juniper harvest. Um, Aaliyah Kidd went to Washington Island with them to do the juniper harvest. Brett Cosmiter went and did a lot of filming for that. So I got to kind of see the the crowd that it attracts. And it was it was a lot of really like young entrepreneurial people who were up in the island partaking in this thing. And this was just a couple weeks ago. So then to read this article uh, the other day was kind of like, oh, that same Death Door Spirits is uh, has filed for bankruptcy after doing this this huge Washington Island trip that they do every year. Yeah, so that I think that was back in mid September, maybe that that happened. Mm-hmm. And it's an annual thing they do. They bring a lot of craft cocktail names from around the state and I think around the country and go up to the island. Basically, what you're trying to do is is get your brand in front of all these bartenders, so they put your brand on uh, on their menus and and help promote your brand. A lot of uh, spirits companies do that. I've, I've got friends who work in the industry who get flown down to Mexico and spend like a week with a tequila brand and they wine and dine you. It's, it's sort of, it's a sales thing. And so, it, yeah, it is kind of interesting that they just did that and now they got to retrench. Not totally uncommon for a business to, to have an event like that because obviously they've probably been spending the last couple of months looking for investment. But declaring bankruptcy, that doesn't mean they're going to close and go away. Um, from right. what uh, they told, what their representatives told Jim Lumstrom is it allows them to liquidate some debt and then hopefully attract some new influx of um, investors and probably reorganize the company. I'd imagine they might kind of bring things back in. Maybe they're not going to like liquidate the facility. There is interest from a Chicago, uh, sounds like some sort of uh, investment fund or hedge fund wanting to, or or venture capital fund wanting to uh, buy the business. And maybe, maybe it'd be something that they want to wrap into another company. I think that brand is fairly well established. I think it would be a valuable brand, but maybe more as a regional play versus trying to be this big national spirits brand. But we'll see. Okay. So walk me through this. The the, the company is being sold at auction on December 19th, correct? So this is not a this is not a way to abandon the business. It is a way to try to uh, restructure it and and bring it under new management to move it forward in a, in a better way. Correct? Yes. And it, and there's a lot of ifs there of, of like, all right, whoever buys it, do they think that the people in place are the ones to run it? Do they think? Um, I don't know if Brian Ellison would stay involved. He's uh, the founder. Yeah. There's a, a lot of questions about the the future of of the company. I think. If I understand it right, they're using about 20% of the, the uh, capacity of that facility that they have. Maybe it's maybe they need to do contract distilling out of that property, just like many breweries will do contract brewing for brands. Door County Brewing is, is, uses a contract brewer for most of their larger lines, and then they do the Hacienda brand in-house. So, yeah, it might just be a, a total flex. And maybe that new one would say, I mean, that desk store name is a great name, but maybe that new owner would say, we don't want to spend it to make the effort to source anything from the island and and nurture that connection to the island who knows right i mean i'm I'm just speculating on all of this but. well and my question is how how desperate was the situation uh in the article it says that they had something like a million dollars in assets but owed 5.2 million yeah um for a business that size is that is that the end of the line or is that something that you can recover from through something like chapter 11? I, th- I think you probably recover from, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Some of the businesses that pull themselves out of bankruptcy to, um, to become great businesses again, but that, that doesn't sound good to my mediocre math, uh, abilities. 
Sure. Well, and it's one of those things where they, uh, while they're not, you know, located in Door County, they are selling Door County as a brand. Yeah. Uh, we just talked to Vicki Wilson from Door County Coffee, uh, and and she said the same thing. It, not only is she selling coffee, which is such a, you know, that's such a universal thing, but it's also she's selling the Door County name. Yeah. And and that sets her apart from, you know, some other people who aren't who don't have that that name to fall back on. Yeah. And and she she takes a lot of pride in that of uh, like, Hey, I'm making this product. I'm going to put door County on it. It better be good. People better enjoy it. And I'm sending it all over the region and in, in grocery stores and things like that and all over the country to private individuals who buy it online. And it, it's got to be part of the brand and, and represent door County. And I think that store has done that, that well, um, to this point. And it's a, it's going to be, you know, it does take a, it, I think it does give the brand a little bit of a, a nick for Door County, but um, hopefully they pull themselves out. Sure. Well, and that's the other thing. Uh, when I talk to people who don't know Door County, uh, people either people either know Door County from vacationing here or from the cherries or from Death Door Gin. Like, that's what I always hear when hmm. I bring up Door County. Like, oh, is that what Death Door is from? The the gin. I'm like, yes, that's, you know what I mean? Well, in so, Death Door, it was, it's such a great name and a great brand because bartenders, it gives them a story to tell about something. And when you're, as a former bartender, you, you love to have a, a story behind whatever you're serving. It makes for better tips. It gives you a connection with the customer. It gives you an opportunity to share something with your customer. So yeah, it's a really great niche. And it, it like the name itself just begs the customer to ask a question like, what's the story there? Any last words on this article before we move on to our feature this week? No, no, that's all I got to say about the bankruptcy of Death Door. All right, then we are going to take a break here, and when we get back, we have some more information about the Sturgeon Bay Granary. Okay, we are back. So the Sturgeon Bay Granary, um, the Sturgeon Bay Council said no to the granary moving back to its original location. The, the granary is really interesting to me because it's one of the, the the more monumental stories that have happened during my time here at the Pulse. So uh, I woke up at three in the morning and went down to Sturgeon Bay when the granary was being moved. And Brett Cosmiter and myself filmed the whole thing, got to know the people who were really pushing for this this move. And I thought I knew the story. You know, I, I, I thought that it moved over there. And then the plan was then to turn it into some sort of uh, museum or historical center. Um, and then that was the end of the story. And I was like, hey, you know what? In five years, maybe I'll be taking my kids to this place. Apparently, that is not the end of the story. There, I'll clear this up for you. There is no knowing the story. With <laughs> It never ends. The story just keeps taking new turns and new twists. And there's stuff that is layers, layers, and layers and generations deep with animosity and um, an infighting within the, the city of Surgeon Bay. Maybe that, maybe we start back at the very beginning for this one. Uh, let's just, let's give the, the brief history on the granary and maybe tell the story of the move and, and, and where we kind of left off and then pick up with, with this. Okay, that's, that's a challenge. A brief history of the granary saga. Sure. Um, all right, so Sturgeon Bay wanted to redevelop their west waterfront. The granary is located on the west waterfront of Sturgeon Bay, was located on the west waterfront sure. of Sturgeon quick Bay. quick sidebar. Granary? Granary. Which one? I say it both ways. I do too. <laughs> I see it spelt as granary, but it, it's about grain. Yeah, I, I don't know the right way to say it. All and, right, we'll use it interchangeably. Yeah. And we'll, we'll figure it out we'll from there. We'll flip back and forth. Um, so... The granary was located on the west waterfront uh, about five years ago. The well, Actually, like eight years ago, the city of Sturgeon Bay came up with a west waterfront redevelopment plan that included a small boutique hotel and an open air kind of public market on the waterfront with a big 
public pier and park and a couple of other different buildings on that property. And the granary was a focal point of that redevelopment plan. The hope was to attract maybe a brewery or some other restaurant or some company to come in and reuse that building in place right there on the West waterfront. Um, it was the centerpiece of that development from the start. The, the consultants that the city brought in said, that is your kind of beacon on this, this property. For the most part, the city community bought into that, really liked the idea. Um, after a couple of years, the city said they were having problems attracting people to that, that public market idea. Um, weren't getting a lot of takers on it. Uh, they did have a couple of different breweries that had great interest in the granary. Lakefront Brewery, or uh, a representative from Lakefront Brewery with the backing of Lakefront. The folks who owned Shipwrecked at one point, the Pullman family, were slated to open a, a small brewery in that location. And Hinterland, I believe, was interested, or no, not Hinterland, Titletown, was interested in opening a, a brewery there and actually un unveiled plans. At some point or another, it, it got kind of murky there, where suddenly the things went on and, and nothing happened there. And then the city came out with a plan and announced a large-scale hotel on that property, which, and their initial renderings were pretty ugly. And both the developer, Bob Papke, admits that, the city admits that. Um, they should have put more thought into that and what it looked like and how they were going to unveil it. So they unveiled that, and then the granary kind of shifted to the background of the plan. And suddenly the brewery stuff kind of just quietly disappeared. And later the city would say that they couldn't, none of the breweries could make it work. Uh, the, the money just wasn't there. They wanted money from the city to refurbish the granary and make it work because it was going to be too expensive. I did talk to those, a couple of those different people who had been interested. And they said, no, we were always still interested in doing something there. The city just told us they were going in a different direction. Sure. So from what I've researched, I don't know what, who's right and who's wrong there. But well, I've been told that people were still interested. Sure. And the, but then, the brewery the brewery thing prevailed even after I started picking up on this story. So this is still before the the city is starting to vote on tearing it down, correct? Yes, this is this is still three, four years ago, 2015. The hotel proposal sends puts everyone into up in arms. I shouldn't say everyone. I would say roughly half the city, maybe more than half the city citizens hated the look of that hotel because they expected they were getting this kind of like kind of half park, small retail, low scale stuff with the granary as a centerpiece. And then it comes up with this hotel that's pretty overwhelming um, from the first artist renderings of it looked pretty industrial, almost looked like like a hospital plopped down there. And they they did do a redesign of that, which um, the city paid for or agreed to pay for. Um, and then there was a big campaign. Some people put up these signs called no big dumb hotel is what they called it and protests against it a lot of contentious city meetings the granary wasn't really a big centerpiece of this because i think everyone just assumed it was still going to be part of something there well that's what and, i was going to ask so we're seeing these renderings is the granary does the granary fit into this or was it's just kind of right next to it okay and then after a couple of years of this last year suddenly the city had said and as this all these lawsuits regarding the hotel not related to the granary all about the hotel kind of stalled the progress there. And then out of kind of nowhere last spring, the fire chief announces that he is, that the granary is unstable and nobody can go in there and it's unsafe. So they had to fence it off. And then a couple months later, and the fire chief says he got a report that the granary was swaying and moving and issued a raise order for it. So condemned the building and ordered that it be taken down within 30 days. There was a lot of debate at the time 
of why that order came through. The fire chief, of course, says it was purely for safety reasons. They didn't initially release the report on what that safety reason was and how much it had moved or any of the engineering studies. They had a bunch of engineering studies from prior years that said it was still stable. It needed to be fixed up, but yeah, it wasn't an imminent danger. They had two different engineers who had filed reports like that. And then suddenly it was, it has to come down immediately. So people looked at that as a way to clear more space for a development there. And so people fought to save the granary and tried to come up with some quick plans for it. Uh, the city council, the, the mayor refused to let people who had perspective plans, like high-level plans, even present them at the, the meetings. Hans Christian came up with one that would incorporate like um, a theater and art center into it. And then they, were, they gave people a, a timetable that they could come up with a plan for it. But then before that timetable, they changed course and said, oh, we're just, nope, we got to tear it down. Timetable, be damned, this has got to come down. Right. So, so nothing's, kinda... nothing really seemed above board in the process. Right. And this it might have been I... coincidence. It might have just been the, that the fire chief had these concerns and it just happened to be bad timing optic-wise. That right. could be. But it looks very convenient if you want that granary gone for all of this stuff to, to happen the way it did. Sure. And, and this is where I start to follow the story. Uh, it seemed like every week we were posting something in the Pulse about the granary is saved or the granary is going down or it's saved or it's going down. It just seemed like this back and forth battle is happening really quickly about the fate of the granary. And uh, before we move on to to what actually happens, uh, what what's your take on the the actual raise order? I, I got to go into the granary before it was moved. And it, I mean, it, from just what I'm seeing, that it was like at an angle for sure. And you might point to the fact that the granary, spoiler alert, the granary did get moved and it, you know, made its way across the bridge. But just the top half of it, the whole bottom half of it was completely dismantled because it was all of the, the support pillars were just, they were no good anymore. Yeah. Um, there are definitely, I mean, you just look at that building and you're not, you don't look at that building and say like, Hmm, that's a really sound building. I'm also not an engineer. There are thousand-year-old buildings all over Europe. There are 500-year-old buildings that are leaning all over the east coast of America. If you just walk through down the streets of Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., there's a ton of buildings that outwardly look worse than the granary structurally, but they're totally fine. People live in them. Businesses thrive in them. Restaurants operate in them. So it's not absurd that, that something could be done with that building, especially with the money available for it. But it doesn't look great. There are some people who have told me, yeah, you can put your hand through the wall. It needs a lot of work. There's no doubt about it. Right. But I, I'm a kid who I grew up, the first home I lived in was actually a granary. Uh, the old, what's now Door County Nature Works in Egg Harbor. Um, my parents converted, it was a granary and lumber yard. They converted it into, my grandparents actually converted it into shopping complex and apartments. And that's where I lived beginning of my life. Later, my dad, my parents bought a house that had been uninhabited for 60 years, had no plumbing and no insulation. And after they had gone bankrupt and then we lived in there. So my standard of what is salvageable might be different than others. Right. Um, well, and from my perspective, uh, the only other thing that I have that that's applicable is there was a this great old barn in not in my neighborhood, but just in my in my town that I would drive by every day on my way out of town. And it was like at a 45 degree angle, like it was really leaning and it had been leaning for years. Like my dad remembers before I was born that it started. So every time we drive past it, we'd be like, oh, it looks like it's leaning even more and more and all this stuff. And I remember just having that memory all through my childhood and, you know, into adulthood. Uh, and, you know, nothing ever came of it until I went to college and then it fell down. So 
like that's my perspective of like, oh yeah, that building that was leaning yeah. forever totally did fall down. Yes. And it, was that a risk that you'd be willing to take given its location? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want, you wouldn't want that building just standing there. Like you, you would want it either remodeled or gone. Like it's not, it wouldn't be safe to just leave it because things deteriorate. Sometimes they go off a cliff. So that might've been the case with this. And that might've been why the fire chief said, yeah, it's just got to come down. It's not safe anymore. Like it seems stable until it's not. I, that's totally possible. Um, so that's, that's not what the argument was at, in, in hindsight. It wasn't whether or not it was structurally sound and sh- or, or not and should Well, from be the fire down. chief's perspective, that's what it was. Sure. But, but rather the argument was why destroy it when we could fix it? We, well, could, that's, we could fix what's there. And that's what came up. That's what surprised people. The people who wanted to save the granary, they were like, wait, the, the fire chief issued this and the council's not even going to discuss, wait, this matters to us. This is the centerpiece of our plan. What other options are there? Like they didn't even go back to the, and the mayor didn't even go back to the fire chief and say, okay, you've issued a raise order, but what could we do to circumvent that, to stabilize it? What would make you happy and make it safe? That question was never asked by the council. They didn't want, they didn't want to pursue it. And that's what really took people up to another level of suspicion and ire regarding that. So what these people did, a Sturgeon Bay Historical Society was formed and really around this granary project or, or issue. And then they went out and they got a donor who put up $1.2 million to structurally um, make the, the granary structurally sound and then to put into rehabilitating it and making it into an actual thriving space that can be used. $1.2 million is a lot. Some people say you need a lot more, but like to stabilize and make a building pretty decent, $1.2 million, pretty good. There were also other people who were coming forward with money. The city council refused to actually discuss that donation and consider doing anything with it. The mayor refused to put it on the agenda. At one point, he denied that it was, he died, to my face, he denied that that 1.2 million even existed because he said, I don't have it. I don't see it in the city account. Just trying to play stupid when he had, you know, Brett Bicoy of the Door County Community, Community Foundation had sent him a letter saying exactly what it was. Um, and if the mayor didn't want to respect the Community Foundation, I don't know who he's going to respect. Um, and so there's a lot of gamesmanship going on there, and which, which can't help but make you think, all right, they want this gone so they can do something else, which is fine. Just propose that and say it, right. and people can have an honest debate about it. On the flip side, the pro-granary folks have not always been the easiest to deal with either. Um, there's a lot of people who stood up at these meetings and who point fingers and make allegations. That's in sometimes disrespectfully. I get it. They're both ticked off at each other, both sides. But there is a little bit of blame to go around here um, in well, far as the tactics. This whole thing was very heated and very controversial. Uh, you know, like I said, it seemed like every week it was flipping back and forth. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what was actually going on at these meetings and, and, and where we got to? Well, you didn't have a lot of people standing up and saying, tear that thing down. You had some, but it would probably be two to one in terms of people coming and saying, we want this, we want the city to investigate every option to save it. George Evenson, the official Door County historian, came up and spoke for it. The representatives from the Miller Art Museum, um, representatives from Third Avenue Playhouse, a lot of different places said, yes, try to save this. We would be interested in doing something in that building if it can be saved. Um, and the city was and it was not, not listening. And at that time, the council was made up a kind of a 4-3 split of people against it. So it really wasn't getting any traction from the council. And so with the, with the order to raise it, then the Historical Society said, all right, we, we've got the funder. We found a place that we can move it to so we can move it across the bridge 
If you let us buy it, we'll move it across the bridge just to save it, and then we'll figure out what to do with it. And so they did that, and that's what you filmed last spring in March. And they spent the intervening time shoring up certain parts of the building and then working on where it could go next. In the meantime, a new council was elected, which if if this council were in place back then, the granary probably never moves because this is the council that's sympathetic to the granary. Um, and it would still be sitting on its old location and probably be in the midst of rehab right now. But that new council was elected. And then one of their first priorities was to dissolve the old waterfront redevelopment com- uh, committee that was kind of independent of the city and kind of controlled the West waterfront. And what they did was create a new ad hoc waterfront committee to come up with a new plan for that waterfront, get a lot of community input, put everything on the table, be totally above board and go community input first. And that didn't mean that the granary belongs there. It didn't mean that it didn't. It didn't mean that a hotel went there. It didn't mean that a hotel didn't. They were just going to re- kind of start with a clean slate and come up with a plan that people could generally agree on, or at least be a consensus plan, and then move with that. So quick sidebar, at this point in the story, this new committee is coming in. Is there also some sort of connection with the Sturgeon Bay dirt piles? Because that's another story that I remember hearing a lot about, but never fully investigating. So the the dirt piles were located on the West Waterfront, kind of around where the granary used to be located. And those were there from the time that the hotel was planned, because they, they they left all those dirt piles there for the new developer to use as fill and foundation um, work for that hotel. And then when that was in the lawsuit, the city kind of stubbornly said, we're not moving those. They're just staying right there. So the city sat there with dirt piles on the West Waterfront for three years, in part because why move them if you think you're going to win the lawsuit and move them back? There's some logic in that, but it also was pretty ugly. People got really frustrated with them. When the new council got elected, they voted to just spread those dirt piles and plant some grass seed. So that's kind of how that with that new council, that kind of changed the the whole history of those dirt piles. Well, yeah. Well, from what I know about the West Waterfront, I mean, I, I moved up here less than five years ago. So from my time there, I love when you go on the bridge and you can see all of the tugboats and stuff yeah. all lined up. That's beautiful. But then right next to that are these huge dirt piles. And then a couple of years ago, it was this old rickety granary. Yeah. So it was just this really weird part of Sturgeon Bay where there was this like beautiful um, tableau of all these tugboats that you could get amazing pictures of. But then like literally right next to you was constant construction and like those uh, orange uh, fences that they put up around stuff with these dirt piles in this old building. What you just spoke, though, you just said speaks to a lot of angles on the whole perception of the West Waterfront by residents and visitors of Surgeon Bay, because the Maritime Museum is undoubtedly, I, I think, the, the best museum in the county. It's a really great facility. And then you have the tugs in front of it, which people love. And then you had the granary, which some people thought was a cool historic relic. Some people thought was an ugly building that needs to come down. And so you had that debate on that. And then that empty lot that with the dirt piles just looked ugly. And people said, man, that is such a prime piece of property. Let's do something beautiful with it. What did people think was beautiful? Some people thought a big hotel. Some people thought public space. And then even the tugboats became an issue because the people who wanted the hotel wanted to move the tugs. So then you had a, a fight over, wait a minute, we want this public space. The tugs are part of the working waterfront. It's this beautiful, picturesque thing. It's part of who we are. And yet now you guys want to build a hotel and get the tugs out of there. It's like you're, you're ruining sort of like what we love about this. And then, then there's a, the Maritime Museum has a proposal to build, I think it's an 11-story kind of fake lighthouse tower. Then there's this debate about, wait, we, want, we support this kind of fake historic structure and then we want to tear down the real historic structure, right. if you want to call it historic. Some people think it's just junk. But 
it's a really I mean, the the ways that that people are are mixed and fraught with emotion over that property is so hard to wrap your and I've been in probably twenty to twenty-five of the public meetings about this. And I've talked to 50, 75 different people at length about this. And it just, it's still hard to wrap your, your arms around the whole issue. So before we get back to where, uh, where we are just before this, this new development, uh, what happens with the dirt piles? Are they still there? Yeah, they're just spread out. They spread them out on the property and planted grass. Okay. So no big dirt hills anymore. No. All right. So now we have uh, the, that piece of property where the granary one stood is at least starting to shape up in some way, correct? I mean, it's got some mixed grass on it's it. It's got some grass, at least. It's better yeah. than these dirt piles. So the granary is at its new location. And from what I remember, what I thought was the end of the story was now things were going to move forward into rehabilitating the structure and turning it into some sort of uh, public museum or historical landmark. What happens that changes that plan? Well. What I was saying before was that you have that ad hoc waterfront committee and they're given kind of carte blanche to create this new thing. And that takes time. The people, the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society, led by Christy Weber and I think Sean Fairchild, have the, the granary on the, the opposite side and they're sort of biding time, I think, a little bit. They, they ran into some roadblocks with the city in doing work on the building um, over the summer. But then they also, their end goal is to get it back on its original location, it seems. They didn't say that from the beginning, but that seems to have been where what they wanted now that their request came last week or two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, a couple of council members, uh, Kelly Catarazzoli and Kelly Avenson, request an agenda item to have the granary move back to its original location on the West Waterfront. And so at that meeting, it's very contentious. And... Even those who also want the granary on the West Waterfront and some of the council members who also want that were saying, we can't, we can't do this. This is the way we were treated when we were on the other side, where we were just undercut, where they would tell us we had 100 days to come up with a plan. And 40 days in, they'd say, well, we're tearing it down. And we don't want to be disingenuous like that. We told this waterfront ad hoc committee that they were going to come up with a plan and tell us what we wanted and, and then move into it. If we take, if we allow you to move the granary back now, we're just subverting the work they're doing. We're undercutting them and telling them, here, you got to work around this now. And that's not what we set out to do. So it was a very heated conversation. And I think through that conversation, it came out through Kelly Avenson and Kelly Catarazzoli that they didn't quite say it, but they intimated that they had a time limit for how long they could keep the granary in the location that it currently is on the east side. It seems like the property owner maybe wants them off. I've never been able to get a hold of Peter Mead, the property owner, to talk to him about it, but it, that seems to be the case. And it also seems to be, be the case that their donor, who put up the $1.2 million, is getting to a point where they're saying, and I don't, they've never divulged who that donor is. Uh, it is legitimate, but it's an anonymous donor. And that donor is now kind of saying, all right, let's either do something or not, because I, I need to do something else with this funds or pull my donation if there's not a clear path to it a future for this property or for this building. So it seems like they're kind of facing a time crunch, but the the waterfront redevelopment ad hoc members also came forward and said like, come on, this we're not against the granary, but don't don't move it back there and then like just kind of make us I, I, I do believe if they did it, it might end up to the waterfront committee dissolving. So just the impression I got from their chair and a couple other members, it just sounded like that would be a throw up your hands like I'm sick of this. So eventually the council does vote 
against allowing the, the granary to move back, at least for now. It, it wasn't something where they were saying, no, we don't want it there. It's just that this is the wrong point in the process. So now what that leaves it as, that lets the waterfront committee continue to do their work. But who knows what that means for the, for the granary folks and for the future of that building. So is it, is, are we playing a waiting game right now where it's like trying to hold on to the property and this donated money long enough to be able to comfortably move in with the, the Waterfront Redevelopment Committee's plan? Is, is, it, is it just a timing thing or is it something more than that? I, I think that's kind of where it's at. And I don't know. I mean, that, that might take six more months to come up with a plan that West Waterfront. I don't know if there is six months for them to sit with the granary because they also need to put a roof on the structure because, um, and that is one thing they argued is we need to put a roof on, but it's hard for us to get the, 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 uh, the okay to put the roof on if we don't have a future location for it. And then on the, on the other side, people were saying, well, do you even have a plan for this? Do you have something you can show us of what this would be on that side? And, and they were arguing, well, you can make it whatever you want, Let's just put it there. And then so people were like, yeah, but we want, we want more than that. And there are some people are like, well, what would you ever use it for? There's a lot of, of good uses. I mean, it moved back there in its original location. It's probably the only thing that could be a revenue generating thing on that West waterfront due to the fact that most of that property cannot be commercially developed based on being below the high watermark. But the granary could as a historic structure if it went back to its original foundation. City could have even, like, I think they could probably have a, a restaurant. Someone could lease it out and, and run something there if it were a public space. I'm not positive on that. But it could definitely be, let's say you had an ice rink there. That could be a warming house. It would be a pretty cool warming house. Um, it could be an event space. You could have weddings there. You could expand off of one side and do some things with it. There's, there are a lot of options for what you could do with it. And as Kelly Catarazzoli said, they have $1.2 million committed to it that the city doesn't have to pay for. And they weren't asking the city to pay to move it back either. They would pay for that. You think about it, what if, if somebody came forward and said, hey, I'll donate $1.2 million to pay for your bathrooms in a community space on the waterfront. You'd say, wow, that's great. Of course we'll take that. That's essentially what this person is, is doing. They, they have $1.2 million for a community space on the waterfront. You wouldn't say no to anybody else, but they're saying no to this. So I get that frustration. It is, it is maddening. I mean, when you look at how those, look at Fish Creek. They had a bath, bathrooms and a pavilion that's they wanted to build and the town was going to pay for it. It was going to be $850,000. And the town revolted and said, heck no, we don't, we don't want to pay that. And they came back with a plan for 200 and some. In this case, you have somebody saying, well, build it. you can have this whole thing for $1.2 million. And honestly, if all it was was bathrooms and a warming house and a gathering space, I mean, that's a pretty cool bathroom warming house and gathering space <laughs> compared to kind of the industrial look that you're probably going to get with anything else. So there's a lot of good arguments for it. But people are, at this point, are so pro or so against that there is not much middle ground. And it is like this microcosm of our, of our national politics where nobody can really talk to each other in the middle. They, they get stuck on the, the, the pro and against. There was also another thing that came out as Councilman David Ward pointed out that the historical society was delinquent in filing uh, some paperwork with the state. And he phrased that in a way that really made it seem like he was making this allegation that you're not a trustworthy organization and how could you not do this? And there's validity to that. If I'm this, if I'm Sturgeon Bay Historical, Historical Society, knowing that there's so many slings and arrows coming at me, I would really try to be squeaky clean. But it's also a little disingenuous because tons of businesses, tons of nonprofits have stuff filed late all the time. So it's he made it seem like a really, really huge deal when it's it's not all that uncommon.
Uh, any other big takeaways about this story? We're, we're caught up now on where we are and the future is uncertain. Uh, any any last words before we, we wrap this up? Uh, no, I mean, it's going to, there's a potential for any day for them to say, yep, the granary's got to move off this property and we might have to go and tear it down and, and store the pieces or something. But I haven't heard anything imminent on that, but the indication from that meeting was that that could happen at any time. So, All right, well, uh, looking forward to... to potentially taking another three in the morning trip down to Sturgeon Bay to watch the <laughs> granary move back to its original location. Uh, although I Hopefully actually, it's not in like the deadest, coldest day of January and February for you. I know. Maybe the granary should just become a trolley that takes people back and forth over the bridge. That would work really structure. well. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think that they should just take the, the granary and move it to Potawatomi and then in place of that tower. That's, so we've got Eagle Tower coming back up. We'll have the granary over at Potawatomi. It'll be shorter, but I mean, it's still something. That's a fantastic idea. You could blow the roof up and just build taller from it. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a story that definitely deserves the time because it is it is something that goes back many, many years and has all these different uh, twists and turns to it. And the, the added context really helps people talk about it. So I just hope sometime in 2019, if I could have like one wish, it'd be like someone in Sturgeon Bay take the leadership reins and say, you know, enough's enough. We can work together. I'll take a couple steps this way. You take a couple steps this way. And let's all start talking about cool stuff we can do instead of fighting over this property. It is agonizing to sit in those meetings and think of all the good that people in these positions could be doing and working toward that is instead spent on this really kind of schoolyard squabbling. Sure. Well, and I mean, it's not, it doesn't seem to be a situation where it's people who are fundamentally disagreeing with each other's politics. It seems like it's people who are disagreeing with each other's personalities. And there's a lot of that. And that, I mean, that you're not going to get anywhere when you're doing no. that. And when you're in those positions, you have to be the bigger woman, the bigger man, and put that aside for the community. And sure. there are, a, a lot of people are doing that. There are some people who, who really take strides to do that. I'll give them credit. There are some people who don't seem willing to do that. I think that that's just about going to do it for us this week. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Miles. And yeah, I look thanks. forward to hearing from you again. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, I hope I wasn't too long-winded. These stories and more will be available in this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse, available throughout Door County. For more headlines, visit doorcountypulse.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast for your weekly Pulse picks, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.